For the Los Angeles Review of Books, I'm Colin Marshall, coming to you from the offices of the Herb Alpert Foundation in Santa Monica, California, speaking today with Lonnie Hall Alpert, who you will know as a singer, as the lead singer of Brazil 66, as a solo artist, having recorded albums in English, Spanish, and Portuguese, as a musical collaborator with her husband, Herb Alpert, as well. She's also a writer. You're going to get to know her today as a writer. She has a new book called Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. And Lana, you waste no time telling us how important Chicago is to you. What is what is Chicago to you? It's the place you grew up, but what what is it? What does Chicago mean to you today? Well, today it it it, it still means to me what it meant to me. Mm. So I don't really know the Chicago of today very well. When I think of mm. Chicago, I think of the Chicago I grew up in, mm. and to me, it was a very dramatic, emotional beautiful city. I mean, it, the architecture, the light, um, the buildings, the strength that you feel from these um, buildings mm-hmm. in the wind that, you know, you think could blow them over mm-hmm. and they stand and they're there yes. and they're there all the time. So I kind of depended on the strength of the city a lot as a mm-hmm. child. I felt, I felt um, protected in the city. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it now, the, the Midwestern light in Chicago. What what does that look like for somebody who knows Southern California light, I guess? What is what is this Midwestern light? In Chicago, there's weather. Mm, yeah. You know, there's seasons and um, there's this wind that constantly blows the clouds through the sky. Mm-hmm. And as it's blowing the clouds through the sky, the light is changing all the time from shade to light to warm light. Sometimes uh, the sky is filled with dark, dark clouds, and at some part of the sky, the sun is shining. So you get this this very kind of surrealistic light with the darkness of the clouds and the glow of the sun illuminating the green trees, and it's just, it's stunning. People will talk about it as being a... a certain particular kind of American strength, a very American city. Is that is that a way you think about it? There's this sort of American spirit in there. I, I don't know how to think about that concept much, but uh, it feels like there's, there isn't an Americanness there, is there not? Is this Midwestern, um, I don't know if it's a, a work ethic or um, a uh, friendliness. I don't know if it's because of the seasons so that when it starts getting warm, people, you know, go outside a lot and, and are much friendlier. When, when um, you know, when I was growing up, everyone looked in your eyes when you, when you were talking to them. And when I came to California, it, it wasn't really like that. It was, it was very, it was, I had to adapt to what was happening here. It, it, it seemed like when I was in Chicago, the people that said they were going to do something, actually did it. Right. Uh, <laughs> and, so it's, it's true what they say, not so much in Los Angeles, huh? I, I kind of find that in Los Angeles when, when people say, oh, let's get together or let's, you know, we'll see you next week or we'll call, I'll call you later or something. Right. It doesn't really necessarily mean that's so. You set most of the stories in this book in Chicago, do you not? They're not all in Chicago, but most of them. And readers will find a new form, a form they maybe haven't read before, because the book's called Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. It contains both those things. 
you set many of the stories in the, in the Chicago where you grew up. You you describe details of your own life in the, in the emotional memoirs sections. You use them in the stories. Tell me about how that developed, the interaction between what, what you call the emotional memoirs and the the fictional stories. How did, how did that develop as, as a form for you to write in? You know, I, I'm kind of mixed in and out of the fiction mm. stories, too. But I wanted to tie the stories together. And um, as I was writing, uh, I, I, I started writing more of a memoir mm. in certain se- in, in, in certain uh, certain days. I just felt like writing that instead of uh, sticking with a, a specific story. Right. And uh, when I was looking through my you know all the work that I had done. Uh, I started looking at at these these uh, memoirs, and I, I thought that that might be a really interesting idea to tie all these stories together um, with a narrative running through the book, so that you feel connected instead of just jumping from one uh, st- a different story to another. Mm. It makes me realize I hadn't thought about this before, but people must have been telling you for a long time you've got to write. A memoir. You've got to write a straight memoir. Think of all the experiences you've had in, in music and starting out so young and working with working in a variety of styles. You must have felt a pressure to go with a simple form, an, an older form. Just just write about your life. You've done something different, and perhaps we could say more creative than that. But what was that pressure there? I just did what felt natural to me and what what felt comfortable, and I, I really did did it to empty my mind of all these images that were kind of floating around and when i write i can i feel lighter I, I i kind of let go of these images so that they don't have to live within within me anymore they can live on the page and so uh that's that's really how i and i never really intended to write a book i i was writing these stories and i was putting them in a drawer and they were sitting in a drawer and um it just so happens that uh, I gave one to a, a friend of mine, and she was so encouraging that it inspired me to relook at all these stories that I had written over the past 30 years. What was the first? Well, I was in Mexico City on tour, and my manager at the time, uh, we were just trying to kill time in a coffee shop or something, and um, he started asking me about my childhood, and I told him this story which was the first story in, in the book called Come Rain or Come Shine. And after I told him the story, he said, you have to write that down. You should. That's a great story. And so that night I started writing my first short story. And um, before that, I would write lyrics to songs. I would write poetry, my impressions of things, um, my feelings about things. But it wouldn't be in a story form. And it wouldn't be about something else. Um they were very personal, intimate feelings and thoughts. This was a story now. I was telling a story, and how will I tell it? And so the process began. That first story in the book, Come Rain or Come Shine, centers on this this friend of yours, Jackie. And in, in some ways, you start reading the, the story, and it's, it's the friend that everybody as a kid wishes they had, the older, worldlier, can, can tell you about things that, that no one else will. Who, who was Jackie? Well, Jackie was a neighbor that I had in Chicago, and I babysat for her son and um, got to know her. And she was married um, to this man, and they uh, separated. And he went back to New York. 
Jackie start, Jackie and I started to talk more and uh, kind of became friends. I mean, she was older than me, but I felt so grown up in her presence. And, um, you know, she wore makeup and she smoked cigarettes and she played jazz all the time. And that, that was really seductive yeah. for me because I just loved it so much. And so going to her, uh, going to her apartment and, and our porches connected. So I just had to leave my back door and walk right into her back kitchen door. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it was very easy to get to her, her house, her, her apartment. And, uh, I just watched her. You know, I I watched her and I babysat uh, when when she got a job uh, as a wait- waitress at night, and um, and then her little boy went to visit his father in New York, and I still became I was still friends with Jackie, mm-hmm. and so uh, and then the story begins really of, about a love affair that she had. Mm-hmm. One thread in this story is is. How you came to how you came to love jazz, and it seems to me America of the late 1950s, early 1960s, if if any time and place was going to make somebody love jazz, that was the time. Tell me what, tell me how you remember that music being uh, perhaps not literally, but metaphorically, maybe literally, in the air then and there. Well, my brother used to play. My brother's four years older than me, and and um, uh, he used to play a lot of jazz, mm-hmm. and so. While I was going to school and my friends were all listening to pop music, <laughs> rock and roll, jazz just kind of penetrated into me much more than than the rock and roll did. And um, I loved the, the the chord changes. I loved the uh, cool jazz. I loved the the feel of that. It it was very romantic to me. Mm. And um, I I see th- I, yeah I. I as I write, I can see what I'm writing. I see the story unfold before me, and the same happens with music. Mm. So when I hear music, I see pictures, mm. and um, the pictures that I see when I, I listen to jazz, uh, it's is la- are like no other pictures from any other music actually that I that I hear, and so um, I just. It, it just was a very natural progression for me to move toward that particular art form which which albums which performers do you remember listening to that that really still come straight to mind when you think about how jazz came to fascinate you well lee morgan and uh ruth olay um, anita o'day lambert hendrickson ross um june christie uh, i used to listen to uh Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall, although she isn't a jazz singer, but my God, she was such an amazing interpreter. And um, uh, Gene Ammons and Art Blakey, mm-hmm. uh, Miles Davis, of course, and um, Oliver Nelson. Just you know, those th- that that group, Stan Getz, Chet Baker, that group of uh, mm-hmm. artists, Jerry Mulligan. I could keep going. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean the names the names you list off all make sense and I wonder this might be a complicated issue for someone who's a musician and a writer but do you do you listen to music while you write? I, oh, no. I can't resist asking that. No, not at all. Oh, Just you can't do I it. I hear oh. music while I write, okay. but I More don't. Interesting. Listen. Still, yes. It would lead me into a different area because mm. I I would see it, right. and then I would go into the direction that. And what I want to do is I want to see the story, mm. and so that really. Um, 
that helps me, so I can I can can hear the music while I'm writing it. So many of the the women in the fictional stories in this book are they find themselves in a kind of emotional turmoil,、uh, whether it's it's fear or they have they have trouble in relationships. I. I wonder what what kind of images come to your mind with those sorts of stories where there, where, where where, I have to imagine the images are are not so pleasant a lot of the time. Oh no, they're not. They're not that pleasant.、Mm. But you know, like I said, they they they're they're in my head.、Yeah. So in order to get them out of my head, I had to write them down. And、right. um, I knew that going into writing I, I, stories, that you know, it wasn't going to be. I wasn't going to be writing a children's book. You know, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was really going to be、Certainly. trying to get as deep as I、right. could go. But um, uh, I think a lot of these women are searching for their own identity.、Mm. They've gotten lost somehow,、mm. and、uh, they don't know what to do in order to find themselves again. And so it's、um, it's their process that that I'm really looking at when I'm writing about them. I'm I'm looking. Well, what what would you do? What what are you going to do?、Mm. What are you going to do now? Your 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 husband just walked in the door, and you you're you're going to get a divorce. You've decided to get a divorce.、Mm. How are you going to forgive each other? What are you going to do about that? How do you fall out of love with somebody that you're still in love with?、Mm. You know, and and just those kinds of dilemmas,、uh, you know, I, I I'm faced with when I'm writing the story, and I'm trying to figure out how to how what they're going to do. A couple of them, memorably, look to therapists. One of whom. Is helpful because he's a specific kind of therapist. One of whom is not very helpful at all. It seems to me, and, and in fact,、uh, the story ends and that story ends ambiguously in a nightmare,、uh, which expresses、uh, the feelings of this woman toward her therapist. Tell me about therapists. So, what, what, what do they? What role do they play in your writing? I mean, we have two that are quite opposed. It seems to me here, but it seems like you could write more about therapists. I'll say that. <laughs> yes.、Um, well, the story that you were talking about—you know, the the ending—you're not really sure. Is it a dream or、yeah. <laughs> did it really happen?、Yes. Um, that that story. I wanted to write a story about bad therapy,、mm. and that you know, when you give yourself to a therapist, there is that transference. That happens,、mm. and you become—you know—you're very trusting. You have faith in this person. You, you—you、um, you know, give her all of you or him all of you. And do they really deserve that? And do they really know what to do with it? And do they—you know—do I find that therapy? And I have had a lot of therapy.、Mm. I've had too much therapy, actually. How, how much is too much therapy? I've been in and out of therapy pretty much ever since I was a teenage girl.、Oh. Yeah, I've been in and out of therapy with a lot of different kinds of therapists,、mm. and、um, I have had bad experiences with some、mm. of these therapists. And、um, I had to to reach a point, you know, like I said, with a lot of these characters, they're looking for themselves, and、mm. you know what I. The last story that I wrote in the book Inland, which is a story of my story,、um, is about me finally trusting my own voice、mm. instead of looking to someone else for the answer. 
what about turning it in on me and asking myself and having myself answer? Mm. You know, what's that going to be like? Mm. And um, that's why I put it at the end of the uh, of the book, because she's actually finding her own voice mm. without the assistance of a guide. And I'm not against guides, mm. but I, I think that the, your your own best guide is yourself and your own wisdom. Are, are some of these women in the book afraid to listen to their own voice? Uh-huh. They, they think it won't. They, they, they'll, I'm going to steer myself wrong. I'd better, I'd better find a therapist or, or some kind of guide. Are, are they afraid that? Do they not trust their own voice? I'll say that. Yes, I think mm. that's very true. I, mm. I don't think, I don't think a lot of them even think to ask themselves. I think they're just feeling this terrible discomfort mm. in their lives and what was working in their lives just isn't working they're not happy anymore they're they're afraid they're uh afraid to really turn it inside and answer the questions themselves because they're afraid of the answers mm. several of these characters they they're they're working in other creative spheres and, and tell me what it was like for you to make characters who are creative, but in different in different ways, working in different forms than than you do yourself. You know, what's it like to write a painter when you're when you're a singer and a writer? Well, my husband's a painter, okay. so <laughs> you've got a little bit of inside information. Yes, I do, and he paints every day, and I'm the curator oh. for his paintings. So you know, I I uh, I do know what that what that is like, not personally, but mm-hmm. you know, as a as a witness, mm-hmm. I do. Um, the, 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 the singer that you talk about, he isn't really a therapist. He's a singing teacher. Oh, okay. So, he's but a therapist he, figure. Yes, he is. He is a therapist figure. He's a very wise, loving, kind person. Who, I believe the professor you call him. That's, so he's a few different yes. things here. Yes, yes, he is. And um, uh, the painter, you know, I needed her to... <clears throat> I needed her to... Uh, feel good about something about herself mm. and you know when you have a creative a creative talent whether whatever it is it's really the same it's the same uh process mm. that you go through in order to get to what you want what you're trying to say whether you're singing whether it's painting or sculpting or dancing or mm. acting or writing anything it 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 it's all coming from the same source, mm. and uh, and and it was uh, so. So it, it it isn't that hard for me to uh, understand something that I might not, I myself might not have the talent for, mm. but I understand the creative process. Mm. They seem to ask themselves the question or worry about the question. You know, is this? I might just be making this up, but they might. They, they seem to ask themselves. Is this is this talent I have coming from me? Am I controlling it, or am I just a vehicle for it? Is that is that why I, I have lost my identity to some degree? Does that make any sense to you? Artists are so insecure, mm, okay. and it doesn't take much to tip them over. Mm-hmm. And um, if you get if you get too much criticism for your art or, mm-hmm. and your talent, it really can work against you. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're a really good teacher, you know that. And you don't your criticism about about a ta- uh, whatever talent you're dealing with has to be very very gentle and kind and reinforcing. 
um, or else it will it will work against you. And artists are very insecure. And with that in mind, um, I think that uh, the story that you're talking about, standing appointment, the therapist that this girl was going to was bit by bit destroying her mm. and driving her actually insane. And the one thing that she could hold onto during that time was her painting. And, and it was very reinforced by the gallery owner in the, in the almost toward the end of the bit. And she started feeling better. Things started opening up for her. Her dream changed. And she wanted to tell her therapist and her mm. therapist attacked her. Certainly, I, I'm, I was surprised by just how nasty this guy was, but I assume you're, you're drawing from life. I mean, you've, you've met all kinds of therapists. I'm sure you've known people who've had all kinds of therapists, and he's probably not the worst that, that has ever been. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, he's not the worst that's ever been. But when I write about his life yeah. and I go into what, what, what he has to confront in his own life, then you see, you, you kind of get the, the feeling that he's far sicker than she is. Mm. She's really the victim. Mm. And um, it's, uh, I think it's, it, it, it unfolds into an interesting, into an interesting story to me. Mm. In several of these stories, you know, you, you talk about this moment where we read the, the life of the therapist and it is, he's, he's got his own problems, yes. certainly. And <laughs> he certainly does. <laughs> I'm thinking of other moments where we, we find out we find out these women's problems are different than they'd first thought they were. I mean, there, there's one where a, a woman's about to leave her husband, and she finds out that not only is not only does her husband want to leave her, but he has a lover, and indeed they have the same lover. Yeah. And there's there's a, there's a story where a, a a woman needs some space from from her husband, and there, there's. There ends up being a bear attack. I mean, there's things, things turn darker and, and stranger. Tell me a little bit about writing those moments where, where you reveal that the problems are, I was going to use the word worse, but you know, the, the, the problems are deeper than the reader or than the character expected. I'll, I'll, a lot of times I'll hear something. Like, for example, I heard that um, I was watching an interview on television of this writer, actually, who was married to this man and... Uh, I don't know how many years later he, he came over and said that he was gay mm. and she had no clue. And so I thought to myself, wow, you know, what would that be like? I mean, that's got to be horrible for him and horrible for her. You know, now what are they going to do? What do they do with each other now? Yes. And so in order to know, I have to write it mm. and I have to find out what happens. And that's really kind of how it is for me. I'm really writing to find out what happens in this case. How do you forgive someone? You know, how do you feel, how do you, when you're, when you feel so betrayed? And then what happens if you're both sleeping with the same person? <laughs> and, and neither one knows it. And, and the other part too in that particular story is I think a lot of women, doubt themselves. Mm. So when she felt that things weren't going right between them, she blamed herself. Mm. She didn't at all think that it was him. And there was a big secret here, you know, that finally came out. And I think at the end of the story, she finds her forgiveness. And that's, to me, what that story is really about. It's mm. about forgiveness. 
uh, as far as the the bear attack, for me, that story is is uh, I again heard someone talking on television about um, postpartum depression, mm-hmm. and they had just had a baby, and they were in their house, and person looked at the uh, the housekeeper and said, "Could you watch the baby?" And the housekeeper said yes, and she walked out, and she got in her car, and she drove down the coast, and she didn't come back. <laughs> she just kept going. And I thought, wow, you know, what? what's going to happen to her? And what is the husband going to feel when he comes home and the housekeeper's looking at him saying, I don't know where your wife is? You know? <laughs> and so I decided to write the story, mm-hmm. and it led to a bear attack, and it yes. led to a... <laughs> A, a, a girl that, that is a pivotal character in this story and mm. how this woman needed to take care of something. Mm. And, uh, and then it turned, it turned out that uh, she had had uh, her baby was born dead. Mm. And it never, she never could come to terms with that. Mm. And it just kept eating her away. Are there false starts? Does the story move in many different directions and that's not the way it works, that's not the way it happened, mm-hmm. and eventually one comes through? Or does it sometimes just happen in front of you as you're writing it? Like take The Cleaning Lady. Mm. The Cleaning Lady, I, I started writing about this woman who was suicidal mm. and wanted to kill herself and she was in her office and she was drinking and she was just drinking a lot and trying to get the courage to jump out the window. And the cleaning lady walks into her office, and then a dialogue begins. At some point, I didn't know where the story was going. I I had no idea. And I was just watching it. I was watching my computer as I was (laughs) typing, and I was watching the story. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I flew into the next room. My husband was reading a book. (laughs) I flew into the next room, and I said, oh, my God, they're both out on the ledge. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it happened. It happened, and you didn't even know that. You certainly didn't know that was going to come. I didn't know that was happening. And and and, and he said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "I have to find out what happened." And I ran back to the computer, mm-hmm. and I realized that's not what I wanted. I didn't want them both out on the ledge. Mm-hmm. I still wanted them. I wanted this to be more of the kindness of strangers here, mm-hmm. and and that's what I, you know I wanted to build. And so I did. I took. One of them, I took both of them off the ledge, (laughs) and then I went into a different direction. I think that you kind of intuitively know, is this the direction you want to go in? But you have to step into that room first in order to know. The the memoir sections of the book also cover your your own search for your own roots. Tell me how that search began for you. Well... In the in the uh, in the book uh, in the emotional memoir pages, um, a lot of them are of my brother and I going to cemeteries actually to find the bones of our ancestors. And uh, uh, when I did find my mother's uh, ancestors uh, or my grandparents, I saw these graves all around them that had their name, and. I knew that these were relatives of mine that I had never knew, known about. Mm. I didn't know who they were. And I introduced myself and <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, and I kissed their, my hand and I put it on their gravestones. And I was very surprised and, uh, by, by finding them because th- this was in a very remote cemetery that no one went in. Mm. So I knew that no one was visiting them and, and there they were, you know, there they, they were. 
I, the only, uh, I only had one grandfather until I was about three years old, and then he passed away. So I never really had grandparents. And um, I, wanted to, I wanted to see where they were and uh, see their names and if they had pictures on their graves. And I, I wanted to know about that. And, uh, and my mother would tell me certain things about uh, her family and the Holocaust. Mm. And uh, she was from Poland. And she came to this country very young, but um, yet her relatives were caught in the Holocaust. Mm. And so I don't think they wanted to tell my brother or I about these times because I think they probably thought that it would scare us or they'd have to explain it and they didn't know how to explain it and, you know, that type of thing. So I think I just had to find out for myself and let my imagination go with it. In the book, you write about things that tell you more about who you are, things that things that represent who you are. And the divide between those and the things that distract you from who you are or confuse you about who you are or aren't what you are. And I think particularly of one chapter when this is, the, the metaphor is made very clear, the chapter about breast implants. Mm. How did that become, how did those become a, a symbol of the kind of thing that distracts you from your real self, shall we say? Well, you know, um, I still, to this day, I'm not really sure why I decided to get them. That's, that was the question yeah. I had because it just sort of happens in the book. It's like, well, I got yeah. them put in one day. Yeah, I got them put in one day. You know, I mean, the, the, sh the uh, shrink that I was going to at the time had a lot of plastic surgery. She talked about a lot of plastic surgery. Oh, yes. And uh, maybe she mentioned, gee, or, you know, that you'd look better with... I, I have no idea. I don't have any recall of this. All of a sudden, I'm on a table uh. and I'm getting breast implants. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if I thought my life was going to change or what was going to happen, but I never, I never related to them. Mm -hmm. They were just these plastic things sitting yes. on my chest, you know. I mean, I really didn't change anything. I thought I would maybe dress more, you know, in a sexier way or whatever. And I thought my costumes for performing would look better. Mm -hmm. And I mean, nothing. I, I never, never mm -hmm. did any of that. And uh, when I would catch a glimpse of myself going, you know, walking down the street in, in a, in a, you know, with a, a big picture window there. And I, I'd look and I'd see myself. Mm. I wouldn't, I would almost not recognize who that was. Mm. So, uh, and then I started getting sick. Mm. So, uh, with an autoimmune, uh, disease called, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome or Epstein-Barr virus. And, I wanted them out, <laughs> you know, because that's what was uh, they were finding that these silicone breast implants were creating autoimmune disease mm. in a lot of these women. And I, I actually thought also that, you know, there's a lot of people that have breast implants or that have breast issues, women that with breast issues, they're too small, they're too big, they're <laughs> whatever, and uh, they're not right. Mm. And, you know, when you feel that way, you don't feel right. Mm. You know, it's not them that's not right. Mm. It's you don't feel right somehow. Mm. And what is going to make you feel right? And and what makes me feel right is understanding myself mm. and why I do things. Mm. And that was a decision that I made that I have no, I don't, I didn't understand. I don't even remember why I did it. Essentially so, not your decision. You, you, you're sort of cut off from whatever the roots of the decision were. Yeah, mm. absolutely. 
Mm. Absolutely. You know, we, we sit here in Los Angeles, technically Santa Monica, but we're in, we're in the land of a lot of plastic surgery. Yeah. And no doubt, as a performer, you know, in a, with, a, with a long performer's career, I imagine in a performer's life, there are many pressures. Be this, be that, be this, be that. Everybody's, I don't know if everybody's necessarily telling you to be a certain way, but I imagine there's all kinds of pressures to be things that you you don't know whether that's you or not. Does that make any sense? Definitely. Mm. It's your identity. I think the winning combination is to be yourself and know yourself. Mm. I sang because I had to sing. Mm. I could not not sing. Mm. And um, it wasn't because, uh, well, I mean, I do love singing and I love music, but it wasn't because of that. It was because I needed to release the feelings inside of me. Mm. And so I did that in my room with all my records, and that's what I did. Um, I never thought that I could be a professional singer. I would, I didn't have the confidence to knock on a door and say, would you listen to me sing? I couldn't, I, I just, there, that wasn't going to happen. So I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. Um, I actually thought of being a psychologist (laughs) for a little while, but, um, the way my career opened up for me, I feel as I look back on it, Mm. I feel it was divinely led. Mm. I mean, I was in the right place at the right Right, time and it just suddenly took off. uh, Readers, uh, listeners won't, uh, won't necessarily know the story you do tell it in the book but the being in the right place in the right time it also involved uh being tricked into getting on stage yeah, right being tricked well, what happened having there? the right friend yes 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 um uh, my friend uh leo was in chicago at a at a nightclub in in a, in a section of chicago called old town which mm-hmm. is kind of like greenwich village mm-hmm. and um uh, she was, and I would go there all the time because it would be free for me because I was her friend. And I would see these wonderful acts, Oscar Brown Jr. and Carmen McRae and just Dizzy Gillespie and just so many wonderful, uh, talented people. And, um, I just was, I was like a groupie. I was, mm-hmm. I was hanging out there all the time. And, uh, one day Leah came into, came to our apartment and I was singing in the bedroom and I didn't know she had come in. And uh, she knocked on the door and I stopped singing and I opened the door and she said, who's in here with you? (laughs) And I said, why? And she said, well, somebody was singing. I said, no, I was playing the record. Mm. And she said, no, Lonnie, somebody was singing in here. And she looked at me and she said, was that you? Mm. And so I was caught. And uh, was it a mortifying moment it was or mortifying. Oh, okay. it was mortifying i tried to get my way out of it by saying some, it was the record player right. but she wouldn't buy it right. and so there it was mm. she heard me sing and she was the only one that heard me sing and so uh when when on monday nights at this nightclub anyone could go up and sing mm. and so she got this guitar player to come up and say and she said lonnie he he wants to play the song that you know. You, will you teach him how to play it in the, on the guitar? Mm-hmm. And little did I know that I was teaching him to accompany me. Yes. They, and they, they had worked this out. They, they said, we're going to get her on stage. Yes. Don't tell her anything. Just Don't. say you want to know the song. You want to learn the song. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how it was. And then she kept giving me these drinks. She kept <laughs> slipping them, you know, to me. And by the end of the night, all of a sudden, I heard my name being echoed through the club. Right. And she was behind me kind of lifting me off my chair and pushing me toward the stage. 
And I kept saying, who's calling my name? Mm. And then I saw the guy on stage with the, with the guitar and Leah pushed me up on the stage mm. and everybody was clapping. And so I sang. Mm. And a man from down the street that owned a club down the street was there. And he walked up to me after the show and he said, um, I would like you to play the next two weekends at my club. And I was already starting to say, oh, no, I couldn't do that. And Leah said, she'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it. I was held over two weekends. Right. And Sergio Mendez in Brazil 66 was playing down the street, came to see me. And he was uh, looking for new singers. And he asked me to be the lead singer to his new group that he was putting together Brazil 66. Mm -hmm. And I said, you'll have to ask my father. <laughs> you'll have to ask my father. <laughs> yeah. That's how young you were. Yeah, I was, I was 19 at the time, but mm -hmm. I was living at home and I, you know, I wasn't going to do anything that my parents thought was a, a mistake. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to meet my, my parents too. And so he came over to our apartment and he met my father. <laughs> he got, he got the A-OK. -okay, he got know? the A-OK -okay and uh, I went. Now, from from the perspective of looking within yourself, and even when you're you're using that process to write characters, tell me about you know rising so quickly. I guess this is what people talk about when they say when they talk about being discovered. Tell me about the effects that has on your your self image, the way you think about yourself. It just the fact that it it sounds quick when you describe it. I don't know if it felt quick. How did it feel? Did, was it disorienting? It was disorienting. It was happening so fast that I I couldn't catch up to it. Mm. And um, the thing that really was the life-changing part of it for me was the um, privilege of being with musicians mm -hmm. and being in their world. I'd never felt that kind of acceptance and mm -hmm. understanding before. And uh, it was really, um, it was kind of like a coming home, mm -hmm. it, you know, because I felt so comfortable in that whole environment and with these people, um, I felt understood. I felt uh, accepted. I felt um, challenged. That was the wonderful part of it. That has never left me. That has never left me. Having gotten so rooted in music, did it feel strange to write or did it feel natural, like like an extension of everything else you were doing just in another direction? Tell, tell me where, where that falls on the sort of comfort, discomfort spectrum to, to, to work in such a different form than you had been. Well, I've been writing since I was a teenager. Mm. So it was a, a natural way for me yeah. to express myself. So I would grab a pencil and paper and start writing. So and really, these were, these were in parallel. You were, you've been always been doing both, I've essentially. I've been doing that. I, I was always writing and singing. Mm. And when I went on the road with, with Brazil 66, I was always writing. Mm. And Sergio would come over to me and say, well, what are you writing? <laughs> what, what are you doing? Right. And I would say, well, I'm writing some poetry. Or any, can, can I read it? And, and I'd give it to him. And, he, mm. and you know, that's when he said, to me, do you think you could write a lyric to a song? Mm. And suddenly, then that, you know, it kind of merged the two talents together. And that was really exciting for me mm. uh, to, to put feelings and words to music. And, uh, 
And that's what I, I did. And, and the music that I, I did it to was Brazilian music and the, the language was Portuguese. And so it wasn't so much that I was translating Make, doing translations, I was writing what the music was saying to me. Mm. And that was, uh, you know, wonderful, a wonderful extension of what I was, you know, already doing, the poetry that I was writing. Mm. And for this book being your first book, it gets surprisingly personal. I don't know, how much do you, how much do you think you really reveal in this book? I, do, do you think this is a, a book that's very personally revealing or one that, how, how do you think about it? Well, I think that it's, extremely intimate, this book, um, mainly because I laid my imagination on the page. I did it. You know, I just, I'm going to just write about this. And if people think I'm nuts, then people think I'm nuts, you know, but this is, these are the dark places that I can go to and I'm going for it because I, you know, in art, in any art, you, you can't, you, you have to be honest or else what's the point, you know? And so, uh, so there was no hesitation to reveal whatever needed to be revealed. Oh yes, of course. You know, so I was just writing what I wanted to write. You didn't think you were getting on stage that night. No, I didn't think I was getting on stage that night. (laughs) And, and so, you know, once I started putting it together, I have real affection for these stories and there, I have, you know, many more stories in, in Majora that I really felt needed a lot more work. These characters haunted me mm. and I wanted to put them on, put them in the book. We've talked a lot about, about the guidance of others, you know, the, the, the maybe trickery that led you on stage or, or the, the, the encouragement that led you to, to write more. I think you really have to use your, your, you know, intuitive nature to feel out the person that's, that's in front of you and, you know, and, and see how you feel with them. Mm. And, you know, like Chris Rock says, when you meet somebody for the first time, you're really meeting their representative. You no, know? Sure. So you got to get through the representative part to really find out who, who is this person. All There's right. more to and and that's really what a lot of the stories are saying. There's a lot more to things than meet the eye. And you know, like what comes to mind is this uh the story Curiosity that's about this kind of transgendered person yeah. that is walking around and this this person is is observing. And um there's a lot more to things than meet the eye. Mm. And and so you always have to know that and you always have to know that everyone's got a dark side and that more will be revealed about people the more you're with them. Mm. So I think that um using your intuition I, I think every every incident that I've had in my life that wasn't very good for me, I knew kind of at the very beginning, there was some little indication Mm. that said, "Mm -mm." (laughs) but, you know, either I didn't listen to it or, you know, something else happened. I got distracted or whatever, but it was there. And I think, you know, if you're tuned into it. Mm. And these, these indicators, you pick up on them now. Mm -hmm. These, these are, these are, and then, then they still pop up with some frequency, I take it. Oh yeah, sure. Mm. They do. Absolutely. They do. Mm. Definitely. I want to know a little bit more about some of the dark sides you still want to explore. I mean, you, you, this, as you've mentioned, is your first book. What, what images, what, what depth still sort of come up in your mind as, you know, I've got, I've got to write about that next? Well, you know, 
It's funny, you know, you, you go through life learning all these lessons and gathering wisdom and, you know, have experience after experience, these mm-hmm. moments of life. But a lot of you is from the past mm-hmm. that you just kind of pull in, pull into the present. And um, I think that, you know, my father is 97 years old now. I, I think I'd like to start writing more about him. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to start, I would like to write more about my present life. Um and love. I'd like to, I'd like to write about, uh, what it means to love and the width and the height of that. You, there's so many of the women in this book there enduring relationships falling apart or hitting the rocks. Uh, we should mention this is not common in the world of celebrity and the world of music being married for an enviable 38 years. 39. 39 years. <laughs> That's, that's something to write about. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's what I would like to touch on. I don't know if I can write about that because it's so big mm. that I, I hope I can I, – I hope I could do it. I mean – Everybody I, wants to know the secret. Uh, yeah, well, oh, gosh. <laughs> the secret is, is really um, acceptance. Mm. It's accepting the person that you're with and having him accept you. If that isn't there – you got you got a lot of problems to to climb over. You got a lot of mountains to climb over with that one, because uh, you want to change someone. Good luck, you know. <laughs> Wiser words were never yeah. spoken. <laughs> I've been sitting here in the offices of the Herb Alpert Foundation in Santa Monica, California, with Lonnie Hall Alpert, who has written her first book, who's published her first book, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories, available now. Bonnie, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Colin. It was a pleasure. Pleasure is mine. I have been Colin Marshall for the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.